Welcome to Nightlight. I have friends who believe that Christmas and most all of the festivities related to it are pagan and serve only to draw people away from what is really meant to be a holy day, holiday. I understand their argument. I don't deny its validity to some degree. Even those of us who have in the past fully embraced the ideas of the Christmas season are becoming so jaded by the sickening commercialization and the mindlessness and meaninglessness and materialism that many, like myself, have pretty much lost any taste for the season. The spending of money we mostly can't afford for stuff that usually becomes sheer waste, along with the supplanting of any spiritual meaning by all kinds of nonsensical cultural debris has for a long time been unworthy of any of our response. But I differ from those who believe that Christmas was always bad and never had anything good in it. I think that's an extreme position because it denies the Holy Spirit the freedom to move through and use whatever he chooses to. What other time in all the year might you suddenly hear a hundred-voice choir hidden among all the mall shoppers bursting out with the Hallelujah Chorus from ten different directions? Is it a bad thing for the random television show to have a holiday theme that sometimes, even if it seems accidental, happens to honor the Lord? I hear the argument, and again, I understand it, that such token offerings to this season don't really honor God, because if it was truly meant to honor Him, then they would do it a lot more, and also they would be a lot less likely to dishonor Him the rest of the time. I agree, token religious offerings like that are maybe not worthy of our respect. It may be sort of an same category as the country music show that spends two hours singing about adultery and drunkenness, but then at the end sings a good old gospel song. But still, what if God can use whatever is useful to him to bring light into someone's darkness? He certainly did it in mine. As a boy, Christmas was like a Sabbath in my otherwise pagan, broken, immoral, lonely year. And I'm still moved to tears to this day by certain memories related to this season because God visited our family and our loved ones. He, he rescued me from an ever-deepening darkness through the light that shone through the cultural fog. The lyrics of the music, which was almost always the gospel in poetry, took up residence in my memory during Christmas and lighted my imagination in ways that would help transform me as I grew into a, an older disciple of Jesus. Of course, that was a long time ago and the culture is more rotted than never. I remember when the spirit of Christmas season made people more aware of being kind and friendly. It made us more aware of those who were truly poor. And though it's right to point out that we should be concerned about the poor all the time, not just at Christmas, and we should be careful to be kind and friendly all the time, not just at Christmas, 
it still was a help and a blessing for the atmosphere almost everywhere to be touched by the promise of the light that once stood over the manger, which pointed to the far greater light that lay inside the manger. It simply helped me to be more childlike. And that in itself is a great and good thing to be childlike. Not childish. We all know a lot about being childish. Childish is when I can't get my way and become miserable and then seek to make everyone else around me miserable too because I'm miserable. I have that one down already, so we don't need to talk about it. Childlike is the ability to be momentarily disappointed and quickly recover because you found something else to be joyful about. I learned about that as a preschool boy during the Christmas season, by the way. We were watching Scrooge, the the 1951 version with Alistair Sim, which is the only version I ever find worth watching. Tiny Tim is standing out in the snow, looking through the window of a toy store at a beautiful miniature boat he obviously would love to have. The store clerk suddenly reaches for the boat and hands it over to a buyer. And Tim's smile immediately melts into sorrow. But only for a moment. He turns his attention to a happy jack-in-the-box that is laughing at him, and he joins in with that as his big smile returns. I can remember, even that young, thinking how strange but how good it was that he could go from sorrow to joy so quickly. It was because he knew he was loved that he could do that. See, I would not have gotten that lesson had it not been for the television station seeking to honor the Christmas holidays. I could list many, many more such examples of how the Holy Spirit used what was at hand to help me become childlike. It is the genius and goodness of God that his saving message is so simple a child can receive it yet so complex, so multifaceted, that millions have spent their lives studying its depths and died having only scratched the surface. We know in part, Paul says. We see through a glass darkly, he says. If Paul, who is trained in the Torah all his life under the most rigorous teachers, can say that, well, where does that put the rest of us? Few people today have any understanding of the majesty of the revelation of Scripture. It's not because it's out of reach, but because it cannot be grasped in a soundbite. Yet at the same time, one statement of Scripture can contain a flash of revelation that can transform a person who then can transform history. Like Martin Luther, when he saw the realization that the just shall live by faith. Or, for a more contemporary example, I always think of Art Katz, who sat in a lonely hotel room on the verge of suicide. Art was a borderline Marxist Jew whose IQ was over the roof and whose constant examining and questioning of everything left him feeling intellectually superior but totally bankrupt as a human being. 
In his utter despair, with nowhere else to go in his head for either answers or comfort, he decided to end his life. As such godless thinking so often does to people. But he picked up a Gideon Bible and just flipped it open and began reading the story of the woman taken in adultery. When he got to the end of the page, he read to the place where Jesus was about to give his sentence of what should be done with this woman. Art says that it took what seemed like hours to find the courage to turn the page. For with all his erudition, modern education, and godless atheism, he was suddenly aware that when he turned that page, whatever Jesus had said of that adulterous woman was what he was saying to Art Katz. So his hands shook with fearful anticipation until he finally found the strength to turn the page. In breathless anxiety, his entire life was transformed. His eternal destiny was changed when he simply read the words, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And a super intellectual godless Jew met his Messiah and in that instant, not via some high theological erudition or argument, good as that may be in its place, but in a direct heart-to-heart confrontation with the living God speaking from the pages of a simple story. A story that may have been read to a child that same night. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is a gift of the working of the Holy Spirit. Many a scholar has studied the text and gained knowledge of its order and its meaning, but none of its many-faceted, multi-layered inner meaning. Yet many a simple, uneducated soul has opened the scriptures to find treasure upon treasure beyond imagination and become in that moment wiser than all the scholars. Dwight Moody was not educated and had an obvious unrefined way of speaking. Though he was becoming nationally and even internationally known, when he was asked to address a university where many Ph.D. faculty would be in attendance, word got out that a country bumpkin was coming to give a talk. He was politely welcomed, but as he began to speak, certain words and the way he pronounced them Snickers began to appear through the audience. Moody continued his opening remarks, and the Snickers increased. He then began to read his opening text from the scriptures, and it was in that moment that the Snickers became openly rude. Moody stopped reading, set his eyes on the men in the room, and said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, when I greeted you, you laughed. And when I began to speak, you laughed. And when I opened the word of the living God and began to read, you still laughed. It doesn't matter if you refuse Dwight Moody, but to refuse him who speaks from heaven makes you a circus of fools. At that rebuke, the Holy Spirit came upon the room and upon the men who had been laughing, and suddenly many who had been laughing were now weeping as repentance began to flood the room, 
just from that short infusion of the living word through an imperfect but childlike vessel. There's a great, mysterious, wonderful dance that takes place between the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority of the Scriptures, and the wonder in a childlike, trusting heart. Whether that heart is a child's heart or a grown-up's heart that is childlike. The simple gospel is clear to any child, and yet once the door has been opened, there are deeper inner layers and treasures of revelation that will take eternity for us to discover. Now, when I speak of inner layers of revelation, let's be clear. I'm, I'm not referring to some kind of strange, secret knowledge that only the occult adepts can understand. Scripture speaks of levels of revelation. Here's just a few examples of many, many we could look at. Psalm 25, verse 14 from the Amplified. The Lord shares his secrets with those who fear him, and he will reveal the hidden meaning of his covenant. Daniel 2, 22. He reveals deep, hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Isaiah 45, verse 3, I will give you the hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I really wish you would take time to study all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 with reference to this subject. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. But not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that came to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. That wisdom which has been hidden, which God ordained before the world for our glory. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he even know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritually awake can see into all things. Colossians 2 verse 3, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 8 and 9, Beware lest anyone spoil you through empty philosophy and vain deceit, following after the traditions of men, after the elements or the elemental spirits of this world, and not after Christ. For in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. And you are complete in Him. Thankfully, there are some scholars who are both. They are scholars and they are people of revelation. They become our guides into the treasury of the storehouse of God's heart. They can take us on a tour of the deeper things of God. How can you tell what are the real deeper things of God versus counterfeit, esoteric, even occult ideas, which are not of God at all, but are demonic counterfeits? Well, the deeper things of God never contradict what has already been revealed. The deeper things of God take what is revealed 
and multiply the glory of that basic truth on greater and greater levels with every new level bringing greater and greater glory and honor to God and greater and greater joy and strength and purity to us. No true revelation of the Spirit will take you away from the basic truth that first brought you to Christ. Someone asked the famous theologian Karl Barth, what was the most impressive and powerful revelation he had ever understood in his many years of study? And he said, well, that's easy. Jesus loves me. This I know. They looked at him puzzled and said, you mean Jesus loves you is the most profound thing? He said, well, no, this I know. That foundation truth is our relationship with Jesus. Doctrine is obviously important. It matters what we believe. Yet Jesus warns the doctors of the law who had the greatest theological training possible to, quote, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, and they point to me, and you will not come to me that you might have life, John five thirty nine. How many of us have had the unfortunate experience of knowing someone who knows a lot of doctrine? They know and you know they know because they love to flaunt it and never stop talking about it and argue over it, even threatening any who may have any different opinion on some point of their favorite doctrine with excommunication. They know stuff, even doctrinally right stuff but they don't seem to know him. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying they don't know the heart of the one whose doctrine they claim to be expounding. We're entering a time when every wind of doctrine is blowing like never before. With the internet, vast rivers of information for good or for ill, mostly for ill, I'm afraid, are more available than has ever been possible. We are truly ever learning but are we ever coming to the knowledge of the truth? Knowledge is being increased, to quote Daniel's understatement about the close of the age, but the only kind of knowledge that will ultimately matter is our knowledge of Jesus and his knowledge of us. For this word for knowledge in both Greek and Hebrew refers not to information in the form of doctrinal statements, but it refers to a heart relationship with him. There's a place of safety from the wiles of the winds of this false doctrine blowing everywhere. There is a solid rock you can stand on and hide under. It's not in how much you can know, but it's in who you know. It's in the childlike humility that trembles in awe and worships in the simple and always increasingly amazing vision of the glory of God. King David says in Psalm 131, I am not proud or haughty. This points to the motive behind wanting a higher revelation than what has been given. It's obviously a desire to be greater in your own self. So David says, I'm not proud or haughty when I come to my relationship to God. He says, I do not exercise myself. That Hebrew word means to walk about, looking for a, a fight, looking for a doctrine to argue over, so to speak. 
I do not exercise myself in things too wonderful for me. Here, the word wonderful is the word secret, meaning secret not known by the rabble. Uh, it's, it's, it, uh, he says, I don't, I don't glorify myself in trying to learn secrets that the poor rabble cannot know. That greater, wiser knowledge that would make me independent of childlike trust in God. That's what it's referring to. I've learned to behave myself as a weaned child. Well, how does a weaned child behave? As one who has been deprived of what he used to enjoy and wants to have again for comfort. He says, I've learned to behave like a weaned child who who is not demanding that he get his way on his terms. I've learned to, to be like a child with his mother, trusting in her faithfulness and care, whether he's being given what he wants or not. Then he says, let all of Israel learn to hope in the Lord now and forever. Becoming like a weaned child, becoming like one who trusts the character of his caregiver even when things are not being given on his terms. That's a manifestation of the childlikeness that Jesus says he wants us to to walk in. What's the danger of knowing a lot? Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Richard Wernbrand, the great Romanian pastor who suffered at the hands of both Nazis and communist torturers, tells of the day when, to his shock and dismay, the two most highly respected Christian leaders of Romania, men he likened in influence as what you might think of Billy Graham or Oral Roberts wielding in our culture. These were the men of Romania in that level of respect. But they walked into his prison cell. They were not there merely as inmates. No, they had come in to cooperate with the communist jailers and had agreed to help torture the Christian prisoners in exchange for certain favors and immunity from sufferings for themselves. Is it possible to be ever learning and yet never come to the knowledge of the truth? Is it possible to search the scriptures and think that in them you have eternal life only to find that you do not know him and he does not acknowledge you? But the good news is, The good news is that it's also possible to humble ourselves like little children, which Jesus told us more than once is the only way we will be able to see him clearly. As in that humility of heart, there is great protection. There's also great revelation. Those who humble themselves will be raised up. Those who come like little children will see clearly and understand accurately It is not unusual now for me to encounter people from various backgrounds. Some are students, some are teachers. Many are longtime church members who are beginning to wrestle with hard questions. Questions they probably should have wrestled with long before now, but thankfully they're finally wrestling with them. 
And sometimes they're on the verge of discarding all that they ever claimed to believe. Not because they have seriously and honestly thought it all through and humbled themselves before God, seeking his grace and asking for his revelation, but because they're angry at God, angry that life does not make sense to them according to their expectations. And though they have no answers, are only piling up more and more unanswered questions that they are happy to cast aside the scriptures and keep their stack of questions. They then turn not to the living God who is really there, but to fables and fantasies and myths. Usually these fables come in the form of some high-sounding theology or esoteric teaching that only the adepts can know. One of the painful symptoms that they are heading into a real shipwreck is when they develop a snarling disdain for what they call simplistic Bible stories. They have outgrown all that, they say. Now there's nothing, I repeat, nothing wrong with wrestling with hard questions and even coming to conclusions where you think you've got to lay aside previous beliefs. If you're really being honest and searching for truth, the Holy Spirit will meet you in that search. In fact, there's obviously a lot wrong when we don't struggle this way. As far too many have grown up in churches that refused to wrestle through the hard questions of life and instead have handed out simplistic, shallow, religious responses to agonizingly difficult issues. Some who spent their younger years just accepting shallow truisms as fact on authority, uh, and that's just the way it is, now find themselves in later life no longer being able to just believe and keep their mouth shut. Their crisis of faith could be a potential doorway into a full reality of relationship with the real God, which he has been drawing them towards all along. But then there's others who may just happily be looking for alternatives to truth so they can then indulge their own selfish wills. We all know the potential for that because if we're honest, we see it in ourselves. But the general outcome of such searching for truth is what we have mentioned already, becoming those who are ever learning, not really searching for truth, ever learning, ever seeking some new idea, but never coming to any meaningful life-giving conclusion. Paul goes on to warn in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that a time will come, and is now here, when people will not endure sound doctrine. The word endure there means they will not be willing to take on the demands of sound doctrine. And by the way, sound doctrine here doesn't just refer to the concepts of the Apostles' Creed, although that's obviously part of it and very important. But New Testament sound doctrine deals more with our behavior and character and our obedience to God than to our belief systems. But that's another subject. But they will refuse to re endure sound doctrine, but after their own lustful desires, they shall heap to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and give themselves up to fables. Now, there's nothing unreasonable about the gospel. 
unless the one rejecting the gospel has embraced a much more unreasonable belief system, that of naturalism. We often quote Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Hebrew text is more to the point. The fool has said, no, God. That carries a double meaning, and it is much more to the point that the fool is not so much offering a logical resistance to God as he is offering a willful emotional resistance to God. There may be some exceptions to that, but I have rarely run across any. It's not the logic that refutes God, but the will of the one who is set on doing life on his own terms. It's the arrogance of pride versus the humility of childlikeness. Mary, the mother of our Lord, is barely more than a child herself when the angels come to her with the message of the Incarnation. As she humbly receives the pronouncement that to her would be born the Messiah of Israel, who is the very Son of God, she responds with these words, Be it unto me according to your word. It must have been in that moment that it was begun in her. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and the power of the highest overshadowed her. As it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, No word of God shall be void of power to fulfill itself. The pattern here is for us to learn to imitate this same thing. In verse 30, she had favor with God. Well, you do too. In verse 35, God's promise is spoken to her. In the next verse, the Holy Spirit begins to empower that promise. And then in verse 34, this is important. Mary questions how this can be. This is not some mindless thing like you know, certain Eastern religions where you devoid, you, you empty your mind and, and you're devoid of any thought processes or any cooperation or any examination of the facts or any understandable question or doubt. She asks the question, how can this be? She questions for authenticity. And when she receives the answer, verse 38, she responds in a childlike, humble statement. Be it unto me according to your word. Obviously, the incarnation is an event far greater and higher than any experience we might ever have. And yet, if we take that idea too far, we miss a major important point. That in another way, it is not something so far beyond us, but it is the prototype of how God wants to work in the womb of your spirit, my spirit. A childlike posture before God that receives his promise, examines if it is correctly understood or not, or if we have any questions about it. Humbly receive that promise, and the Holy Spirit moves in to begin to bring that word to pass in our lives. The posture is one of childlike humility coupled with understandable questioning. Now, this is totally different from Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, who also questioned when he was told that his wife was going to have a son by supernatural intervention. But in, he, his response was in a spirit of unbelief, total unbelief, and almost 
a certain degree of disdain that God would wait around this late in his elder years to finally come through with what he had asked for before. Well, the result for him was to be stricken unable to speak at all until the promise was fulfilled in Elizabeth. I don't think that means God was mad at him. I think it just means God didn't want him to keep spouting unbelief. If we see this pattern, childlike humility, logical questioning, submission to the promise, confession of the promise, and the reception of the Holy Spirit moving on the word to bring that promise to pass in us, we have the incarnation being worked on and on in the earth through us. Now, Mary's song of wonderful worship and praise, when she sees Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with the promise of God, makes a lot more sense. I used to read these words, and I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out what they really were referring to. Now I understand. When I understood the childlike posture of both Elizabeth and Mary, then I understood what Mary was referring to when she sees Elizabeth and she says, blessed is she, or Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there shall be a performance. Notice the wording here. The King James doesn't have it clear. Blessed is she who believes that there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And then listen how Mary responds. My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted those who were of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 53. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Mary as she worships responding to, to, to what's happening in her and through her in words that are meant to teach us something here that I'm afraid we've missed too often. All his outpouring of blessing, mercy, might, and strength is given to the one who is low, in low degree, who fears the Lord, and who is hungry for God. He scatters the proud and takes them down from their thrones, and sends them away empty. But the humble he fills and feeds and exalts. I had a conversation many years ago with a certain British atheist who seemed to truly enjoy his own misery as he explained to me how he would love to believe all the silly, childish fairy tales Christians believe but he said he would much rather suffer in the desert of stark, cold reality and intellectual maturity, as he called it, 
than to bask in the much more enjoyable but stupid fairy dust of Bible believers. So we who were humble and hungry were filled, and the rich and the powerful have been sent away empty. The Holy Spirit wants us to get this. He does not force us. He only woos us. Blaise Pascal, the famous great mathematician who is the father of much of our modern modern math- mathematics, was also a very powerful, insightful Christian. He said, God gives us enough to believe in him and not enough to force us to believe in him because he does not want to rape. He will only woo. A hard heart coupled with a harder head who demands God give account of himself before he will humble himself and receive will go away empty, no matter how hungry for truth he claims to be. I have seen so-called intellectuals on many college campus university settings seem to truly long to know the Lord, but underneath their outward hunger is a teeth-gritted, fist-clenched demand that God be the God they demand him to be, and if he's not, then by God to hell with him. See, it's not that they are saying there is no God as much as they are saying no God. Let me interject here at risk of digressing that sometimes God has been so badly presented to them by ignorant or even mean Christians that it's no wonder they've rejected that God. But that's another story for another time. Listen to the hungry cries of some of the proud whom God in his mercy has had to send away so they might learn to return to him as children to be fed rather than critics to be placated. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, says, I feel myself so rugged and ruthless and removed from the whole aesthetic side of life, a sort of logic machine I am, who's been given the commission to destroy any idea I find that is not very robust. But later he writes, I have a very internal and terrible spiritual loneliness. I have dreamed of a combination of spiritual and physical companionship. If I could find it, I could become something that I know I shall never be. Charles Darwin, quote, I'm glad you were at Messiah It's the one musical performance I should like to hear again, but I dare say I should find my soul too dried up to appreciate it as I did in the old days. Up to about age of 30 and beyond, poetry and music gave me great pleasure, and even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in poetry and music and art. But now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried to read and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I've also lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some of the taste for fine scenery, but even that does not cause me the exquisite, exquisite delight which it formerly did. 
my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our lives. You think? Vladimir Lenin, the father of the Russian Revolution and of the Communist Party, who, by the way, hated any flowers ever to be in his room, said, quote, I cannot listen to music. It makes me want to stay, say stupid, kind things and to pat the heads of people. We are not to pat their heads, but beat their heads without mercy. But later he wrote, I'm living a nightmare lost in an ocean of blood of innumerable victims. It's too late to alter the past. What was needed to save Russia was 10 St. Francis of Assisi's. Famous atheist David Hume, to shield himself from philosophical melancholy and delirium brought on by his championing the cause of atheism, he said, quote, I drive, I play backgammon, and I converse and make merry with my friends, and when after three or four hours' amusement, I try to return to my speculations of naturalism and godlessness, they appear so cold and strained and ridiculous that I cannot find it in my heart to enter into them any further. Yes, God has sent away the rich and the proud, hungry. So what is parched and dead in your own inner world? Where has the cold calculating, grown-up, too adult for childlike humility part of you taken its toll? Have you forgotten how to sing, how to dance, how to laugh? Do you have any color in your imagination, or has it all turned dingy black and white with an overly burdened, very grown-up focus on what you call the real world. If you go out into the blackest night and stand near a waterfall, you won't see anything but darkness. But if you happen to take an infrared camera and look through it, you'll see the most breathtaking colors, the kind of colors only Disney or some other fantasy filmmaker can produce on a movie screen. But God had already painted the dark night with the magic colors. We just can't see them, at least yet. When the dark glass through which we are now gazing is removed and we see creation as it really is, it will surpass all the most magical and wonderful fantasy images of the most gifted imaginative artist. But we don't have to wait we can go there any time we decide to. All it takes is a humble willingness to stop being so blasted grown up and do what Jesus told us to do. Become like a little child so you can see. See what? Colors in the dark? Yep. 
what Jesus referred to as seeing the kingdom of God. Evidently, the kingdom of God must be, among other things, bright colors dancing in what we only perceived with our natural eyes as dark. Speaking of colors, this brings me to my closing point. When the creator of everything wants to communicate his mind and heart to small, finite creatures, he doesn't write heavy theology books. He paints pictures. Something happened to me as a boy that will illustrate what I'm trying to say. I once had a Sunday school teacher many years ago who, though she was in her late 70s, had enough of a childlike heart to grasp the highest levels of reality and bring them down to a child's level. She explained to a room full of grammar school-aged kids some of the symbols and meanings of the colors in the tabernacle of Moses. Blue, she explained, was the symbol of heaven or of God. Red, the symbol of the blood of humanity and of earth. Then she showed us that when you mix blue and red, it becomes purple. And she said that was the symbol of the king of royalty and of what she referred to as incarnation. I'd never heard the word that I remembered up until that moment. I left the room that day with my mind flooded with something I could not have put into words, even if I had been much older and more verbal. I didn't know what to call it, but what it was was divine revelation. Because I was not just seeing the colors or remembering the words she ascribed to each color. I saw on a level that is beyond mere human seeing or thinking or understanding. Only a few weeks later, during the Christmas season, that same level of revelation came over me in a totally different way, completely unexpected and unforeseen, when suddenly, in the middle of what might have appeared, or I'm certain would have appeared as a boring church service, where people were barely engaged, barely singing, that same level of revelation came to me. I suddenly was made aware that what we were singing was exactly the same truth as the colors of the tabernacle, that they were the exact same reality. The song was We Three Kings. The lyrics had become familiar just from the perennial repeating of them over the years, so I knew them on a certain level. But that's the amazing thing about the spirit of revelation. You, you may receive it through some unusual event, but like the incarnation itself, often the supernatural may come straight through that which you had always previously considered as mere mundane, normal, everyday stuff. I suddenly saw again in a way that words cannot describe as we sang of the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, that this was the same truth as the colors of the tabernacle, gold for kingship, frankincense for deity, myrrh for sacrifice. The gold paralleled the purple for kingship, the blue, the frankincense for God, and the red the myrrh for blood and sacrifice. Then, as if God turned the volume up on the singing in the room, suddenly the last verse flooded me, though I had heard it many times before, but flooded me with sight 
and sound and presence. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. And I began to tremble inside. My whole body shook with the weight and power of what I suddenly saw and understood like I had never seen or understood it before. Blue, red, purple, gold, frankincense, myrrh, king, God, sacrifice. It was intoxicating, exhilarating, liberating, life transforming. And it was all going on inside the body and mind and imagination of a small boy and what anyone watching would have only seen as a boring Bible Belt church Christmas service. It was like the visit to the nighttime waterfall, dark, colorless, except for a wonderful eternal moment when I was given an infrared camera through which I saw. I saw the reality that the dark was only covering. The colors had texture, smell, and taste. The music and the colors all combined, and through them I saw. The one in the manger we sang about suddenly not only filled the manger, but he filled my mind, my heart, my imagination, as I was for a brief moment in earthly time baptized in an ocean of meaning. The whole sky was blue with God. The whole earth was red with humanity. The whole of creation was centered in the purple of the incarnate God who had come as the sacrifice that would redeem the entire universe. No wonder Paul runs out of language when he's trying to describe it. I saw the baby in the manger no longer as the baby, but as the God who created all babies, all mothers, all fathers. I saw him coming down from the blue to the red to become the purple and then pouring out the red in order to bring the earth back to heaven. I understood on levels I'm still trying to find words. No wonder Paul says, and he runs out of language in trying to say it, in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace by which he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself that in the unfolding of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth." In him, king and God and sacrifice. I would never be the same. The service ended. My body stopped trembling. The overwhelming emotion of what I saw at the dark waterfall through the infrared camera loaned to me by God subsided. I would go back to the dark waterfall world of colorless night and grow up damaged by it and by many other things in the dark. But I had been forever infected by the spirit of revelation that had come to me by sheer grace in what was a boring, mundane Christmas service in a small 
Bible Belt Church. It would work in me until the colors I saw that night in the dark became my normal, ever-present reality. I live in those colors now. The dark was not as it appeared. There was rich, pure colors of blue, red, purple, and gold all around me all the time. I just didn't see it until I was given revelation of it. He didn't show me these things in a theology classroom. He caught me while I was a child and painted me a picture I could never forget. Then he said to his father, I praise you, my father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them to little children. Merry Christmas. God bless you all.